stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, a fascinating new book on an important part of World War II history, certainly an important part of Canadian military history, the ill-fated raid on Dieppe. Patrick Bishop is a military historian, spent 25 years as a foreign correspondent, author of several books, including the bestsellers Fighter Boys and Bomber Boys. His latest is called Operation Jubilee, Dieppe 1942, The Folly and the Sacrifice. Patrick Bishop, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. Obviously, this comes at an important moment in the war. Uh, obviously, the Americans are, are starting now to get involved. The Soviets are, are kind of pleading with, with uh, the U.K. to get uh, more heavily involved in the war. Help us uh, you know, set the stage as to, to where things were at entering the summer of '42. Well, you're absolutely right. It's a key moment in the war. Everything has changed from a British perspective. They've now got to take account of uh, the Americans who come in the war on their side, which is, of course, very welcome, but at the same time, it brings uh, a new pressure on them, which was not there before, which is they now have to listen to the Americans and take account of their wishes. And that's increasing the case as the war continues. On the other side, over in the east, you've got um, Joe Stalin begging, pleading, demanding that um, they do something to alleviate the pressure, enormous pressure that his troops are facing on the eastern front. The German onslaught threatens to actually uh, bring about, not perhaps defeat, but a situation where Stalin decides it's worth trying to make a separate peace with Hitler, which would be disastrous for the Allies because it would leave most of Europe in Nazi hands. So uh, Britain is under huge pressure to do something. The Americans are new to the game, and they think that we can invade Europe in 1942. Uh, The Brits think this is a a fantasy. It'll only end in disaster. So they've got to, on one hand, they've got to appease their their new allies, um, and uh, on the other, they've got to kind of resist pressure to do something rash. So they've decided on a kind of middle course, which is a, uh, this raid on Dieppe, which you really got to look at in terms of um, politics and propaganda. It's not really a serious military operation. It's a gesture of intent. It's showing willing. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it certainly comes through in, in how you describe it as, as, as political. But I, I suppose had it succeeded... There may have been some some strategic value from that. So how, how do we how do we place it in that context? Yeah, that's always the great mystery: is what was Dieppe actually for? If you look at the the orders, uh, there's an enormous number of, of uh, objectives, uh, ranging from uh, blowing up ammunition dumps, seizing military headquarters, getting intelligence material, etc. But kind of strange things like towing back a large number of barges, which the Germans had already, or previously rather, earmarked for transporting troops to Britain for the invasion that never happened. So one of the main things listed is uh, that these barges are going to be seized and towed back to England. That's a hugely complicated operation. And we didn't really need the barges. We were building loads of uh, landing craft at that that stage. So there's kind of incoherence about, about the whole plan, which makes it hard to see how you would actually have measured success. What would it actually have taken to um, come back and say this was a triumph? I I think the minimum would have been to capture the town for a couple of hours and then retreat without losing too many men. But, of course, that didn't happen. The troops never got into the town. And uh, most of them were uh, either captured or, or, or wounded or killed on the beaches. 
Now, certainly, I mean, you know, the decision to proceed with this was not the decision of just one individual, but uh, certainly uh, General Mountbatten emerges as rather significant in, in this whole idea. How, how crucial was he to this? Well, I think if there's one person to blame for the whole thing, it is Mountbatten. I mean, the, it's got to be remembered that the first uh, Dieppe raid uh, was called off at the last minute. The troops were all actually loaded up, ready to go, but the weather was atrocious. And so uh, they decided to call it off and the ex- expectation would be, well, that's it. That's to be Dieppe is finished uh, for all time. But it was Mountbatten who pressed for it to, to be remounted and go ahead even though there was a high probability that the Germans knew would get to know pretty soon that uh, a raid on Dieppe had been intended. Now, his reasoning for this was that uh, the Germans, he thought, the enemy, he thought, would be would never think that the Allies were mad enough to go and attack the same place uh, twice after the first one had been called off. And that kind of reverse logic, bizarre though it seems to us now, mm-hmm. was accepted by by Churchill at the time. Now, the question always is, why was Mountbatten so keen to press on with the raid? And I think it's, it does come down to a simple question of personality. He was a vain man. He was an arrogant man. He was a very ambitious man. And so he really wanted to make his mark in history. At that point, his fortunes and his organization's fortunes, he was the uh, head of Combined Ops, which was a new setup uh, designed to launch raids into Europe, was going through a bad patch. So in order to kind of recover his his mojo, if you like, um, he had to have a, a success. So he prepared to gamble on Dieppe, which was the only operation they had on their books at that time. And in that, he was, I have to say, encouraged by the Canadian high command in Britain, generals McNaughton and Crerer, who for their own reasons also wanted it to go ahead. So there was this kind of coalition of um, self-interested people at the top who were capable of making this happen, who came together Um, and insisted that, against all logic, really, uh, it went ahead. Well, let's talk about the Canadian troops, who obviously played a a big role in all of this. Now, when we look back to to World War I, where Canada had gone into that war more or less as British troops, but the the feeling was that we really emerged as kind of a a fighting nation ourselves, and things were going to be different in in World War II. But from a British perspective, were, were things really that different? Well, I think that's a really interesting point, Rob, because the whole kind of dialogue in Canada after the war, First World War, was, um, OK, we've earned our spurs. We don't need to be play second fiddle to uh, the Brits henceforth. We've got very good, brave, resourceful and skillful troops. We've got good commanders. So, you know, we're not the country cousins who just send in to do the dirty work. We're actually... Um, pretty good soldiers in our own right. So if there is another war, and of course as time passes, that, that likelihood increases the whole time, we're not going to just go over, overseas at Britain's behest uh, and send our boys to die in a war which is, will probably not be of our making. So, But, of course, when war comes, all those kind of uh, independent instincts all kind of evaporate, and they do indeed march off to war, and the relationship between the Canadian generals and their British counterparts is not very different from how it was in the First World War. That is, that the Brits tended to condescend uh, to the Canadians and take them for granted. Um, And I'm afraid that's really what happened in this case. So you've got both Crerat and McNaughton were in the First World War themselves. They fought on the Western Front with great distinction. 
And um, yet they still seem to suffer from this kind of inferiority complex. So when they're told, um, you know, do this, do that, will you do this, will you do that? Uh, they almost always say, yeah, of course we will, you know, and they show this um, rather kind of touching eagerness to do what the Brits want them to do. So with the actual Dieppe raid, they, they had no part at all in the framing uh, of the plan. They did later, but in the initial stages, the whole kind of conception was an entirely British invention. Um, so, yeah, I mean, why were they so deferential? I think it's just that old habits died hard, and you had some forceful personalities on the British side uh, at the top, at the very top, with Sir Alan Brooke, who is the head of the British Army, and um, the immediate British commander, Bernard Montgomery, who, as we all know, um, was someone that you didn't sort of argue with lightly. Well, and there, there's also been this notion that, you know, at the time, the, the Canadian troops were, were just sort of sitting around in, in Britain waiting for, for something to happen. But, I mean, how much how much truth is there in, in that statement? How much truth is there to that? I've uh, hung around with soldiers a lot over the years. In my first war was the, the uh, Falklands War 40 years ago next year. And um, I think anyone who, who knows soldiers uh, knows that they're, they're not sort of straining to get into into battle just for the hell of it. You know, they want to know that if they are going to be used, that the plan has been well thought out, that they're going to be well-trained and well-equipped, and that the operation has some reasonable chance of success. Um, I think in this case that, that wasn't so, but it, there was a bit of a myth that developed after the war, or indeed after the operation, which was used by the Brits to justify using Canadian troops, which was precisely that uh, myth that, uh, that, that the Canadians were kicking their heels, they were desperate for action, and they, would, uh, they were the ones that the actual troops were the ones who were putting the pressure on their commanders uh, to, let them, to let them get into a battle somewhere, anywhere. Um, I don't, I, as I say, I don't believe that. I think that they, they were happy to do their bit, but they, they wanted to do it in a way that would actually bring the war a bit, uh, war's end a bit closer so they could go home. What is true is, as I've said, that uh, there was uh, a certain lobbying going on at the top from Crower and McNaughton um, to get the Canadian uh, regiments into action sooner rather than later, and that played into um, the British plan. So looking around the troops, they thought, oh, well, you know, the Canadian uh, generals seem uh, very very happy for their troops to be used, so why don't we... Why don't we take them at their word and use uh, these units from Sec- Canadian Second Division? Well, and and here we get to to sort of the the contrast of of, of all of this, the the folly of the mission itself, uh, but the the bravery and the courage in which you know these these troops undertook it. Yeah, I mean there is a, a bright side, is perhaps not the right way of putting it, but uh, yeah, for all the all the flaws in the plan, and there were many, um, no one can fault the performance of the Canadians or their attitude. They were, they were well-trained, actually, for the operation itself. And um, they showed, they were given an t- impossible task, and yet they did their damnedest to, to carry it out. No one could actually have uh, succeeded, I think, uh, given the hand that, uh, that they were dealt by the planners and by the... Uh, the top brass in, in allocating support to them. But they showed on the beaches of, of Dieppe extraordinary 
courage and determination, but also amazing sort of humanity towards each other. A lot of the time they weren't actually doing any fighting. They were just trying to survive. They were just trying to stay alive. And uh, there's so many stories of, of people completely disregarding the appalling dangers around them and uh, leaving cover to drag their comrades back um, and try and administer some kind of first aid to them. So there were two VCs, one in the action, both really for that, one by um, a great Canadian hero, uh, the Reverend John Foote, uh, who, who just you know, absolutely selflessly uh, spent all his time on the beaches just trying to do what he could to help his, his, his fellow Canadians. And when he was offered a chance to get onto one of the few landing craft that came in to take off survivors, he said, no, I'm staying with a with the men and went into captivity with them, which uh, is where he sort of carried on administering doing his, doing his good work. Certainly in the aftermath of this, and you alluded to it, I mean, on the Allied side, there were efforts to sort of re- revise the history of this or put the best possible spin on all of this. And, and clearly it was, you know, a pivotal time for, for keeping that mood and, and morale high. It was a big propaganda coup, I, I would imagine, for the, for the Germans, though. Yeah, I know it was uh, it was an absolute gift to the Germans, and uh, they made full use of it. The British propaganda effort had been very well thought out beforehand, and uh, they had a kind of a uh, plan B if everything went wrong, which was to spin the thing as a an experiment, a military experiment, which had to be undertaken in order to prepare the way for the real cross-channel invasion, uh, the D-Day, which was you know, down the road somewhere, no one quite knew when. And that was how it was presented afterwards, that, OK, there was a sacrifice, but it was a, a necessary sacrifice. And the lessons that were learned at D-Day uh, really did uh, justify Dieppe, because on D-Day, far fewer people uh, than might have been killed were killed, and the operation ultimately succeeded. And that really, that argument really um, got a lot of traction. A lot of people believed it and repeated it. I don't buy it at all. I think that uh, anything uh, that happened at D-Day uh, that can be attributed to people trying to attribute to Dieppe is actually something that you could have worked out with a bit of military common sense in a couple of hours. Um, none of it is kind of rocket science. Uh, but I can see why there was this uh, effort to to present it as a kind of necessary evil, if you like. One is because Mountbatten want, wanted to preserve his reputation, uh, which is the, the kind of uh, bad reason, if you like. But there's a sort of more noble reason, which I think is that if you survived what happened at Dieppe, if you're uh, one of the veterans of Dieppe, you didn't want to look back on it and think, you know, what was that was all about? Um, you know, there must have been some purpose to it. There had to be some reason uh, and benefit for the suffering that you went, underwent and, and, and the suffering that your comrades underwent. So it's a kind of human, natural human reaction, I think, to try and uh, explain something positively that has been a traumatic experience. I'm curious too, Patrick. I mean, uh, you know, certainly this looms large in, in the Canadian psyche and in a part of, of Canadian military history. There's a perception maybe that this is but a but a mere footnote from from a British perspective. I mean, coming in in the shadow of Dunkirk and obviously so many other important uh, moments in in World War Two, is this something that the British public isn't as aware of, or is that maybe um, a, a faulty Canadian perspective? I know. I think that's absolutely right. I think that um, you know Brits who 
know a bit about the war will probably have heard of Dieppe and will know that it didn't go well. They might even know that there was mainly a Canadian effort, but they won't really know a great deal more than that. And um, I think uh, that is unfortunate because it really was uh, a huge gamble was being taken with with Canadian lives. And uh, I think we need to to recognise that and to, I won't say make amends exactly because we're not directly responsible, but to, to admit that um, there was an element of, I think, of using Dominion troops uh, in, a, in a rather kind of uh, careless way, if you like, uh, which perhaps they wouldn't have been so keen to do if, if the troops were all British. Well, the book is called Operation Jubilee, Dieppe 1942, The Folly and the Sacrifice. Patrick Bishop, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Rob. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.